All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast brought to you by the fine folks at readrothbard.com and actualanarchy.com. We've got over 350 articles up there now. It is blowing up. It's crazy. Check it out. Get some more traffic over there. We, we did make a recent change where we're doing a little bit fewer postings so that it has more chance to sink in, and we'll be doing some featured articles. We're going to have each podcast episode that we launch will ride at the top for most of the week, and if we do special, that'll show up there as well. Today, we're not having a guest. It's just me and Robert, and we're going to talk about the movie Kong. Skull Island. How are you doing, Robert? Man, I'm awesome, except I just feel a little more naked than usual um, without a guest. This is weird. This is, is this our first? No, this is not our first actual Anarchy podcast without a guest. I think we did, what, uh, the first two without a guest? We did the intro episode, and then we did uh, Captain Fantastic without a guest. But then since then, it's been a string of fantastic people coming on, talking about stuff. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's been really good, and I've gotten sort of used to having a guest. Like, it used to be that we were a little bit nervous about, like, oh, how are we going to, you know, manage to have three people on at the same time? You know, we're, we're not used to having three ways here, uh, and now we're sort of used to it. So this is a little bit weird going back to our roots of just you and me having some banter back and forth. Um, but I think it's nice to be able to mix it up because we can't always work something out with a guest. This particular movie is one that's presently in theaters and that, kind of dovetails nicely with doing the Logan movie that we just did recently. And uh, I, I, I kind of like the idea of writing that coattail as something that is presently, you know, top of mind for the general public. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a movie that Daniel has not seen, but I did. I made a trip into town. I braved the journey, and um, I arrived late to Logan. So this entire episode is because I arrived late to Logan and uh, went to the wrong theaters, like in two different theaters. So I arrived late to Logan, and I was just like, well, just give me the ticket for whatever the next show, whatever the next thing is instead, because I'm not going to wait like four hours until the next Logan show is. That's a ringing so endorsement, my friend, ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was like, whatever, just, just give me some tickets to something. I don't care. Um, so yeah, uh, went in to see Kong and, uh, so I'll be providing the breakdown of the movie. Uh, although you did read the wiki and you saw like the trailers and things, right? Yeah. I saw enough of the trailer to, uh, realize that John C. Riley is a funny dude in this one. He is. He's definitely the best. Mm, he's the, he's the comedic relief and he's probably the most interesting character. He has the best arc. Um, I don't even know if any of the characters really have arcs. Kinda, sorta, maybe. We'll get into it. But John C. Riley, yeah. Um, anyway, good. He's good. So, do you want to just start, or you want to do some? Uh, you want to do some uh, house cleaning, or you already did that a little bit? But I don't know. What do you want to do? Uh, yeah, we can just remind people to. Uh click on any of the Amazon links we've got on there or click on the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom link. Make a purchase on that bad boy. Uh, give him some of your smackers. That's what he calls dollars. And get some access to the uh, history and economics that they did not teach you in school. Uh, and that's, that's some pretty good stuff there. I'm a big fan, so that's why we promote it. And that's one thing I want to let, let our audience know is that we won't promote something unless we use it ourselves and we enjoy it. Um, so that's why we don't promote a whole ton of stuff. Uh, we do, you know, the Tom Woods thing. We do Amazon because Amazon's awesome. I mean, just the, the amazing level of service you can get, low prices, the thing shows up the next day or, or, or the day after. But they've even got in certain cities, you can get stuff within an hour. It's crazy. 
So, you know, check out Amazon, guys, if, if you haven't already. I mean, I, I know you'd have to be living under a rock uh, to not know about Amazon. Uh, and I don't know how you'd be listening to us if you're under that rock. But that's the house cleaning I got, right. or well, under, well, under the rock cleaning. Okay, good. God, they got that out of the way. So, Kong, Skull Island, uh, just had its opening weekend, I want to say like last week. Um, it's fairly well-reviewed. It's like 62% on Metacritic, 79% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, had a budget of $185 million. Um, the director is a fairly unknown guy. He had a few like smaller features, and then he got this. Um, not Never seen any of his uh, previous work, but not important, Daniel. So I've got a couple of main points, but first I'm going to, like I always do, go through the movie, give you the rundown. So it's 1973, and John Goodman and his buddy are representatives of this firm Monarch, and they are petitioning this senator guy because they want to do a map survey of this Skull Island. And for some reason, they can't fund it themselves. We don't know what Monarch does. We don't know how they have any revenue. But apparently, their revenue stream involves begging the government for tax dollars. So the senator gets convinced that it's the Cold War, and we might find something there that the Russians might want. You don't want the Russians to get it. You want us to get it. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll put your bill, or I'll, I'll attach your, your budget onto a rider, like a rider on a bill that I'm going to be putting forth, so you'll get your money. And then at the last second, they're also like, oh, and by the way, we also need a military escort because it's really hard to get into this island. It's surrounded by this weather tornado, like, all the time, this hurricane, force winds and clouds and storms constantly swirling around this island. So that's why, you, you know, it's never been discovered before and that sort of thing. So they're putting together their team and uh, they get this you know, plucky young photographer girl. And the um, it's right after the Vietnam War, so they've got like this former SAS badass guy played by Tom Hiddleston. And they get a couple other grunts and whatever, all from the um, under the command of the helicopter gunship crew of Sam Jackson. And Sam Jackson is this like guy that, he doesn't want the war to end. He is like his whole life is about how fighting and war and whatever. And with the end of the Vietnam War, he's totally bummed out. And um, he gets this call to do this last mission, and he's just super happy about it. So they're on this boat, and they've got like they're headed towards Skull Island, and you've got your Marines on one side, and you got your like scientists and nerd types on the other side because. But the cover story is that they are going to be setting off seismic charges, dropping seismic charges out of helicopters to map this hollow uh, island. Um, one of the, turns out one of the scientists is like a key, he wrote this key paper on the hollow earth theory. And they think that there's going to be some really interesting geological features under this island. At least that's, that's the cover story to get this whole thing going. So they uh, they arrive, they're flying in with all these helicopters, and um, let me back up just a quick second. Uh, John C. Riley, he was a World War II pilot, and at the very, very beginning of the movie, he crash lands on this island, and that's why he's like this weirdo that they discover and run into later on. So anyway, they're flying into this island, and they start dropping these seismic charges, which are essentially bombs. And um, Kong, right away, is like, what the fuck, dude? And he puts a tree through the windshield of one of the helicopters. And um, so the big battle ensues. And he ends up trashing all the helicopters and killing a bunch of people. And But a couple survive, you know. So then the, the, the two main groups are split up. you got Tom Hiddleston and the plucky photographer girl, and they're in one group with a couple other people. 
and then you've got Sam Jackson leading his grunts and who's left of that crew. And one group goes off in one way and one group goes off another way and they eventually, you know, get back together. But on the way, they see all the crazy monsters that live on this island and, like, there's this giant um, bamboo spider. So, like, in this bamboo forest and they're like, oh, this is cool, but these bamboo shoots are moving. And uh, a guy gets, like, stabbed through the face by this bamboo spider. Uh, then there's, like, a giant um, water buffalo that uh, is really cool looking. Um, Kong at one point eats this giant squid, which is pretty cool. Uh, you wonder what he eats. So they, I'm glad they showed us eating something because he's so huge compared to everything else. You wonder what he's being able to eat because if, if he was like eating trees, it would be like just look, these little toothpicks that he's putting in his mouth, um, which, you know, generally I guess gorillas are vegetarians. So, but they do eat meat from time to time. Um, but he just, he's so much bigger than the old Kong, like the old Peter Jackson version or uh, the whatever, 1930s Kong. So he's probably, I don't know, it's hard to tell, but he looks like about double the size of the old Kong. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, it's not like he's standing next to a building at any point in time. Um... So what happens is they're bombing up. The reason Kong's pissed off is that they're dropping these seismic bombs and they're opening up these, they're waking up these creatures called skull crawlers, which are these two-armed snake lizard creatures. And they're the things that killed Kong's family. So you're waking up these monsters that he has to fight and he, he runs around, and he finds a couple of them, and he kills them. Um, later on, there's a big one that gets woken up, and that's the one he didn't want to get woken up because that's the one that killed his family. And these, these things are living underground, right? And they're, like, hibernating or whatever? Right, in this, like, hollow earth. So, um, yeah. So that's So I wanted to get into a discussion about that, about does Kong own this island is he is it okay if he's just defending the island it, uh there are human beings on the island and at one point um you're talking to john c Riley, um and of course he describes i don't know why there's like this deification of primitive man um i think the left does this a lot where they deify this back to the nature system uh, anarcho primitives do this too this is like the ultimate ideal but john c Riley is he's been living with these people for like 20 years and they're very much primitive people they they're agrarian um you know they're all very tribal they've got like tattoos and ink and whatever all over them and they wear like you know live in bamboo huts and you know <clears throat> you wouldn't call them like an advanced race um but he describes them as, and I quote, that they have no personal property, no crime. They're past all that. So if they don't have any personal property, which makes me wonder, do they share toothbrushes? Gross. Um, and like underwear and things. Like maybe they don't wear underwear. I don't know. But uh, if they don't claim to own any property on the island, if they don't, you wouldn't say that they own it or they don't claim to own it, even though they have like houses that they build. Um, would you say that Kong owns it? But Kong's not a sentient creature, apparently. Or is he? I, I would think he is. Um, he defends the land. He defends the island. He doesn't, in fact, he doesn't even kill the humans. He defends the humans. At one point, the uh, photographer girl, um, like goes outside of the village and she's like trying to help one of these water buffaloes, these giant water buffaloes that an, a helicopter has landed on. And the water buffalo is like, uh, help me up. And so she's trying to help it up. And then Kong comes up and just, just snatches up this helicopter and lifts it off her. And then he just kind of looks at her. And she kind of looks at him and he just kind of walks off. Um, but later on, Kong like goes, he goes out of his way to save the humans' lives, 
but at the same time, the the humans are killing him and trying to kill him. So I don't know if you want to say that this is some sort of uh, like the noble savage kind of argument where these people are more pure than like technological humans um, or less savage because uh, Sam Jackson, he sees all his people die and he very much turns into like Captain Ahab and Kong is his white whale. And he, he doesn't care about almost anything else. At one point he's like, okay, we got to save this one guy. But it's really, we find out that he doesn't really care too much about this one guy, this one soldier. What he really wants to get to is this crashed helicopter where all these weapons are that he can use to kill Kong. Um, he says that this is like the, an enemy, and we've got to bring it down. Even though, are you kidding me? You went into his house. It's not like Kong is like getting on a boat, and he's going to start invading the United States or whatever. <laughs> it's just, I mean, is this like an allegory for the Vietnam War or something? Probably. Um, yeah, isn't, isn't, that I, a, isn't that a, a line that John C. Riley delivers? I think I saw it in the in the theater or the preview where he says you came into his house started dropping bombs that means you're picking a fight exactly yeah yeah you don't go into somebody else's house and drop bombs without unless you're picking a fight um so yeah john c riley he's very much he explains how kong is their defender he calls him the god he calls it his island and um he at one point he enlists the aid of the um, Tom Hiddleston character and the photographer girl to go and save Kong from Sam Jackson. Because Sam Jackson has gotten the weapons out of the helicopter, and he set up a trap for Kong, where he's like dropped a bunch of napalm in this bay area, and he's got all these bombs set to go off as soon as he gets Kong in there. But, of course, John C. Riley and crew come up and they're uh, convinced Sam to not kill him, that this is wrong. Um, but I, I know you have strong opinions about sentient creatures, Daniel. So in my mind, can, or in your mind, does it sound like Kong owns this island? Does it sound like he has self-ownership? Do you think he's a sentient creature? He's certainly acting, he recognizes that human beings have sentience, or at least he perfects, defends them. He doesn't eat them like he easily could. He could, he chooses to eat other things and then defend the humans. But the humans, at least the new humans, don't show him the same respect, but the the indigenous noble savages do. Yeah, it's kind of tough to to give a reading on that just based on what you've told me and what I've seen in the preview and in reading the wiki because you could argue that the reason he's trying to stop them from dropping the bombs isn't because it's his house that they're blowing up it's because they're going to wake up these creatures so it's more of a cause and effect thing uh and then his not killing the humans i guess after the initial helicopter murders or deaths um i mean a dog a dog does that right like They'll be loyal and, and nice to their owner or someone they're familiar with, but a stranger or somebody aggressing against them, they'll bark at or, or attack or fight. And we wouldn't say that a dog has self ownership, right? I don't know. I've seen some. I've seen some really smart dogs, Daniel. <laughs> some of those Australian Shepherd dogs, they they're smarter than a lot of people that I've seen. But uh, we could we could we could say that they don't have self ownership for now. But I would like to know what your test is for self-ownership and sentience is. Because if we don't give it to creatures that are obviously intelligent, like a dolphin, 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 um, dolphin language is every bit as complex as human language. Yet we don't attribute self-ownership or sentience to dolphins. So if we don't do that to dolphins, who are every bit as intelligent or complex in their social organizations and language, then what's to stop, say, some like alien species from coming down and not recognize our self-ownership? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I'd have to look further into the literature. I'm sure that Rothbard's got something in Man, Economy, and State, and I'm sure Mises has certain arguments about you know, where rights come from and at what point do you have rights versus not. Uh, one of our 
more recent episodes, we were talking about mental health and if people have like a psychotic break, do they lose some of their self-ownership when they're no longer um, making rational decisions and they're a threat to themselves or others? And I think it's an interesting question, and, and I'm not saying I necessarily have answers, but I think that they are interesting in that uh, they would need to be figured out at some point, right? Like we'd have to know when to recognize some someone or something else's rights, their negative rights, you know, for us to not interfere with them. Right. So based on what I said, I'm just going to try and get a definitive answer out of you. And you can just speculate. I don't care. doesn't matter. Um, do you think that the expeditionary force of this, these Americans and whatever, do you think they, they were acting justly with what they were doing? They were going out and dropping bombs on this island, and who cares what they end up destroying or waking up or whatever? It's, they're just dumb creatures that don't have self-ownership, so who cares? Yeah, I think it's, it's unsavory for sure. Um, I mean, but they by no means homesteaded it, and there were other people living there. It, it comes to be discovered, though they shun the concept of private property, though they, of course, have private property, so it's a little bit of a conundrum there. But, yeah, going around dropping bombs on something... Maybe they're not violating, like, the, the NAP against the animals there or the vegetation there, but they're certainly doing something that's unsavory. And they also don't own the property. Like, they haven't homesteaded it either. Like, Mike Tabone in our previous, um, in our St. Patrick's Day special, he was talking about the lock proviso, which is where you mix your labor with the land and you improve the land. But if you were to put something in there that's basically destroying the land, then that doesn't qualify as homesteading, right, if you're not leaving it in an improved state. So I would think that these guys don't really have a a right to drop bombs on this thing, even though these are what they, they describe them in the movie as uh, scientific instruments because they're using it to do sonar through the, through the earth to see, you know, the underground caverns and whatnot. Yes, but... They, they they do have um, okay so there are they do also drop these um, like you got these scientists on the ground with equipment and they're doing these readings but the bombs they're dropping are absolutely I and mean, they're not just like you know like a thumper in uh, tremors they would just like go land and then start thumping on the ground like seismic charge you know putting out any kind of seismic signals these are actual just bombs that are just exploding. Like it, it reminds me very much of like um, you know they had like Credence playing <laughs> and it's like Apocalypse Now where they're just flying along and they're just dropping bombs out of the out of the sides of the helicopters. So, I mean, from my point of view, they don't you think that they had a duty or uh, some kind of obligation, even if this land is uninhabited, um, to discover whether it is uninhabited? Because let's say they do find out that there are people there who will absolutely be um, murdered if they drop these bombs on this island and wake up all these monsters. The only thing that's stopping these monsters from murdering everything on this island is Kong. So they, they kill Kong, and they wake up all these monsters, and what, they just piss off and take off and just let the, the monsters murder everybody? Yeah, and of course, they, they don't know this ahead of time, right? But that's precisely why you can't just go indiscriminately bomb an area that you haven't homesteaded. I think they do have an obligation to homestead it before they do anything with it. Like they have to exhibit ownership over this area and, you know, per the lock proviso, they got to go in and explore it. They got to improve it. They got to have some kind of ownership claim to it. And in that process, they would discover that there are people already living there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think they're totally in the wrong, just assuming that it's uninhabited I mean, clearly they're they're aware that there are animals of some sort and there's vegetation of some sort there. I mean, they can see that much. So I don't think that they should have been doing any of that stuff because um, it's not their property, right? Right. Like, if it's their property, then yeah, do what you will up to a point. They would have an incentive to treat the, the property properly or at least discover if there's these, you know, monsters underneath or at least if they did drop bombs after they had homesteaded it and, like, they live there 
or they have an incentive to treat the, you know, the land properly, whatever, uh, improve it. Um, yeah, if you do then bomb it, you would all of a sudden realize that, oh, shit, I'm waking up these monsters. I probably don't want to do that. Or, you know, you'd suffer some sort of detriment for that action, as opposed to just flying along and dropping off bombs and then just leaving. Yeah, it is an interesting question because, you know, with all the nuclear testing that has happened in uh, the U.S. government's history, like the Bikini Atoll and and detonations in New Mexico, uh, I mean, they they clearly killed a bunch of wildlife, right? Like, the, the Atoll had probably millions of fish in that area, and they just blew them up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that island ceased to exist afterwards. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's certainly unsavory, and, and I don't think that they, quote-unquote, owned it, so they really had... I mean, even if you did own something, and that means that you could do what do what what you wish with it, I still think blowing it up is still um, inappropriate, you know? Mm-hmm. Because then there's no value in it any longer, right? You've destroyed the value in it. Right, as opposed to just creating value for it to be a bomb testing site. Right, I mean, I guess if if that's the, if that is the value in it, then, I mean, I, I sort of philosophically think you can do it, but I also think that bombs wouldn't be really necessary in an ANCAP society. Right. Right, yeah, there would... I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. So, um, did we answer whether you think that Kong is sentient or not? I forget. Did we Did we do that? Do you think well, that I, he has... He hasn't necessarily homesteaded the island, but he recognizes the sentience of other creatures, other human beings. And he acts intelligently. Um, I don't know... I mean, it's not like he, he does use tools to a certain extent. Like, uh, at one point, he gets a... Um, a chain and uh, a propeller at the end of that chain, and he uses it in like a uh, kind of a morning star mace uh, whip kind of style uh, to fight uh, a monster. Um, so he is, you know, he's fairly intelligent. He recognizes other human intelligence, um, but he doesn't necessarily like, you know, make clothes or whatever. You know, he's also, <laughs> he's also like 100 feet tall, so kind of hard to do that. Yeah, I'm not sure um, what the, you know, I think I skirted the question earlier because I wasn't sure exactly what level the literature would argue. And, of course, this is a made-up character, right? A made-up, mm-hmm. like, non-existent thing. But I think that uh, instinctual behavior versus learned or trained behavior versus self-directed behavior, I think those might be levels of distinction. And he's clearly working beyond instinctual and he's working beyond trained behavior like who would have trained him right so he's, right. he's making decisions on his own he's improvising he is recognizing the um sentience of others so the, the argument could be made i think in this fictional character in this fictional area that he does have ownership of you know he has homestead of the area like he lives there he eats there he sleeps there so you know whatever his terrain is, I think you could argue he's homesteaded it. Okay. Excellent. All right. Yeah, because I am of that opinion. I'm of the opinion that um, once the Kong distributes or exhibits, you know, an intelligence, um, well, first of all, they shouldn't have been bombing the shit out of the island, but, um, and I just, I just think, you've got this giant monkey. <laughs> um wouldn't that be a much more valuable thing than to just murder? Um, just to have it exist in the world to, I mean, from a from an anthropological standpoint, to study it, to learn about it, to learn of the the science of how it grew to be that size, to you know all these things, these magical things that exist, to to have your gut reaction to just be, well, we got to murder this thing. <laughs> Seems to be like such a waste. If even if you don't recognize that uh, that Kong is a sentient creature with self ownership, yeah, and and I haven't used this line in a while, but I used to use it all the time on our shows. It's in the script. I mean, you kind of have to have this story, right? So they have to have this confrontation. Yeah. So even though 
you would expect that if if such a creature were discovered that that they would treat it differently than hey let's go murder this thing because <laughs> yeah. they could just leave right like these guys don't have to stay there no i mean i mean once they once they well okay let me explain exactly how it goes so they fly in with all the helicopters they have and they were on like a a flat top not exactly a uh an aircraft carrier but uh almost like a shipping freighter and so they take off from that and they fly all through the storm and then they land in the in the in the island but they don't actually land on the island they're just flying around um there's one specific point on the island that they say they all need to get to to be extracted from the island um so uh, and once kong smashes all the helicopters up then that's like the whole point for the one half of the group is to we need to get off this island and make it to this extraction point. So it's Predator. Sam, yeah, pretty much Predator. Very much Predator. Uh, whereas Sam Jackson goes all Ahab, and he's like, no, we got to kill this monkey. Um, so, yeah. Um, there's a few good lines. Uh, I forget who said this, but I wrote it down. Sometimes an enemy doesn't exist until you go looking for one, which uh, I think, you know, it's a pretty good, pretty good line. Um uh, let's see here. What else? Well, let's explore that one for a minute because I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, it's it's like almost the Orwellian. Um, you know, we've always been. What is it? Rooted, the war with root, East Asia. <laughs> right, and and every time that that there's this arch enemy, like even in in our present history, like the commies. Well, then communism collapsed. Then it's the war on terror, and then you know the war on drugs, the war on whatever. There's always something that needs to be the rallying point to bring everyone together in opposition to something like a common enemy. And it's, right. it's an excuse to throw more money at something, to throw more attention at something, to justify all these abuses of power. And I think that that, that comment is uh, maybe a commentary on that. I also feel like the um, John C. Riley quote that we talked about earlier where, you know, you don't go bomb in someone's house without realizing you're picking a fight. I think that is um, a nod to the the concept of blowback that Ron Paul talks about and why, you know, these terrorist activities have happened in response to bombings and drone strikes in uh, countries all over the world. I mean, you would expect that if somebody knew that some foreign government was coming to your, where you live and blowing up people you know, that you would be pissed off about that. Yeah, that seems like a very natural response, <laughs> but yet they get vilified and demonized. So yeah, uh, you're right. I think that they, that very well could be a comment from what they're saying in this movie. Um, it's very much. I'm not exactly sure if it's you know more of a modern allegory or if they're also making comments on the Vietnam War, which is rightly after that. I mean, you could it could be about any war really, any war of aggression where they're illegitimate creating enemies where there weren't one before um i will say that even as sam jackson as a um commander leader guy throughout this movie he never even though he is the commander of the military forces he doesn't project that um presumed command ship over everybody in the party so like if you watch almost any other military movie. Anybody that gets attached to the military unit like falls under the command of the leader. Like, I don't know. I can't really think of one off the top of my head, but you'll watch a military movie and it'll be like, you need to do what I say or else, you know, you could die or whatever. Sam Jackson is very much the opposite in this movie. He's almost like an anarchist in that sense, except for what, you know, the people that is, he's ordering around. Um, there's a point at the movie, uh, several points, I think in the movie where, Sam is like, well, we're going this way. And other people are like, well, we want to go this other way. And Sam's like, well, why don't you go that other way then? <laughs> You're free to do that. We're going to go this way. And we got all the guns, so if you want to live, you might want to come with us. But you're free to leave at any time. So that was kind of a, kind of a good thing, even though he is, uh, goes all Napoleon crazy 
um, to murder murder the monkey. Um, let's see if I have anything else about this movie. Um, I could I could talk about how the acting isn't super great. I mean, John C. Riley is really good. He's really funny. Uh, like I said, he's got the best arc. He starts off as this uh, shot-down pilot in World War II, and he lives there with, for 20 years. And all he wants to do is get home. And, uh, you know, he defends Kong, and um, he's kind of like the, the, the comedic relief. Um, but he's also like the voice of reason. At one point, they're going through this uh, graveyard, this graveyard of Kong's family. So these giant bones. And he's like, no, this is this is we do not want to go here. This is this is where the skull crawlers live. This is their turf. We do not we do not go in here. But of course, uh, Sam Jackson's like, no, we're going in there because you got to have action scenes, right? And uh, there's a kind of a ridiculous, and I wish they didn't put this in the movie, but there's a at one point John C. Riley he had a friend who um, he got shot down with him wasn't a friend at the time. They were like brutal enemies trying to kill each other. One was a Japanese like zero pilot and he was like a Mustang pilot or whatever. And they're trying to kill each other in the very beginning, but you know, over the 20 years they become fast friends and he, his friend dies. So he's got his, he's still got his uh, katana. And um, at one point he like hands it to Tom Hiddleston and they're fighting like these, um, uh, they're like little lizard monster like pterodactyl creatures and they like do this slow motion like 300 style just slicing through stuff it was kind of ridiculous i mean they, they set it up a little bit in the beginning where tom hiddleston uh takes out these two guys with like a, a pull cue and a pool ball but it was a bit on the ridiculous side um all the rest of it though other than a little bit one of the actors of the marines was really really flat um, it seemed like somebody's cousin that they just threw in. <laughs> Somebody that the producer owed a favor to, I don't know. Um, but the main thing I had a problem with in this movie, other than the issues that we've talked about, um, was the that this, and it's not a huge issue because this is obviously just a monster movie, but um, I know that Peter Jackson's King Kong didn't really work for a lot of people because it was too long. Um, and maybe it dragged in its parts and whatnot. But for me, um, Peter Jackson did a way better job of creating an emotional connection to the characters for the viewer. Um, I cared about King Kong in that movie. I cared about his relationship with uh, the lady girl. In this movie, Kong is just this... Um, you only see him, really, when he's fighting something, and there's no kind of tender moments where they can get to know each other, which is fine, but none of these characters I cared about. None of them. Um, John Goodman, he just kind of gets unceremoniously murdered by some monster. Um, no, I think he gets smashed by Kong. I forget. But um, Or a skull crawler, maybe. Um, the only real character that I cared about was John C. Riley, and um, whether or not he gets home and gets to see his family again. After 20 years, so that was that was good. But uh, other than that, there was no real emotional connection to any of the characters. I thought I kept expecting there to be, you know, Kong to do the uh, the T-Rex fight with uh, protecting a human or something like that. And there really wasn't anything like that. There was one moment where he saves the photographer girl for almost no reason, other than that she's a, a human, and he for some reason likes to save all the humans. But um, yeah, it just didn't. It didn't have the emotional connection for me uh, that, that the Peter Jackson version did. But it, this movie did look better, although on the whole, although I'll say there was nothing quite as good as the T Rex fight in the Peter Jackson movie. But um, I'm not going to defend the Peter Jackson movie entirely. There's a bunch of a bunch of green screen kind of crap, especially when they're running away from the the dinosaurs in that movie. That's really not great. But um, yeah, anyway, uh, th that's kind of my review for the, just the movie in general, uh, how quality it is. I think it's sitting around a 60%, 70% kind of score, and that's about where I'd put it. Um, it's a good, like, monster movie mashup, but it's not like a, a complete movie by any stretch of the imagination. And, and, you know, 
it's rare when a monster movie really does hit that note. I think like the first Godzilla did, and then like zero Godzillas after that. I mean, the recent re- Godzilla remake. Um, I mean, you got the main character of of the son of Heisenberg, and I, the main emotional connection in that movie was Heisenberg and his wife. And then, like, a dog later on that almost gets killed. But other than that, you don't care about any of the characters. Uh, I know some people watch these movies just to see the big monsters, you know, mash into each other, which is fine. Uh, they're definitely setting it up uh, Kong to do another movie. Uh, there's going to be, a, I think, a, a Godzilla King of All the Monsters movie and then a Godzilla versus Kong because they do say that uh, Kong is still growing in this movie. And they probably need to scale him up another... I don't know, probably another 20, 30 feet for him to really be able to take on Godzilla. Although, since they're both like protagonist monsters, they're probably going to be fighting for a little bit and then they'll be friends and fight like Mothra or who knows, Rodan or somebody. Right, because there's like a boatload of those old Japanese Godzilla movies with different villains in each one, right? Yeah, there's like... um, all kinds of different archetype monsters, but then there's a bunch of like, um, there's like a three-headed Godzilla monster and then a robot Godzilla monster, which I don't think they're going to do. I'd be surprised if they do that. And there's like Mecha Godzilla. They got, you know, it got silly. But uh, yeah, there's there's a whole stable of uh, big monsters for them to fight. So it'll be interesting to see who the, uh, if there's actually going to be real villain type characters versus hero or, I don't know, Usually in those video games where you're fighting as one of those monsters, I mean, you're basically just running around a, a city destroying it. So it seems like oh. everybody's bad. Oh, yeah. What was that game? It was um, Rampage. That was a pretty fun game. Yeah, it just involved you but smashing buildings and eating people. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, that, that was it. Then there was also one on the Neo Geo, King of All Monsters, where you just ran around in, in a building or a city and smashed stuff. And then, uh, like wrestled other monsters so you're, you're basically just an ancom right just going around smashing shit and the patriarchy at the same time well property is set daniel so i'm not actually destroying anything <laughs> just, i'm just seizing seizing the means of production and then destroying it i guess i don't know that's what we do that's what we do daniel so if if you're uh kind of wrapped with that portion of what you were saying i do have a couple of questions and comments Sweet. So in watching the trailer, and it's not a preview, right? It's a trailer. Uh, at first I thought this was maybe one of the last movies that Philip Seymour Hoffman did, but it was turned out to be John Goodman channeling his inner Hoffman because there's this voiceover talking about, you know, like, oh, we've awakened this, whatever. And it sounded like him, but it's John Goodman. And mm-hmm. Hoffman was in the uh, 2005 one, right? Philip Seymour Hoffman was in the 2005 King Kong? There was no 2005 King Kong, as far as I know. Or whatever the Peter Jackson one was. With Jack Black uh, and that. Wasn't he the... Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but that was my first, like... When I first heard the voice, I was like, well, did Hoffman do this before he died? But then it turns out it's John Goodman. Well, there's probably some way to find out, but who knows. Um, no, I don't think... Uh, yeah, King Kong was 2005, you're right. Um, but I don't think uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was in that... But uh, I, I don't know who played the, the, the monkey in this movie. Um, I don't think it was Andy Serkis, which is like the first time there's been a monkey in a, in a Hollywood movie that Andy Serkis hasn't been the wearing the ping pong ball suit for. Um, he was definitely, I think, a little bit more of a man in this movie and less of a ape style. I think Andy Serkis is really killing that like man-ape type performance and uh whoever did it for this one was more standy uppy human monster dude um but anyway did you have some more comments daniel yeah just a few more things uh we'll probably have this be one of our shorter episodes actually we've been going almost two hours recently (laughs) um i wanted to talk you know earlier in the episode you talked about the company they work for what's it called um maverick or something monarch Monarch. and how it's kind of this corporatist um 
government-private-public-partnership deal uh, fascist thing. And it, it, when you first described it, I was like, oh, that's Elon Musk, right? It's like Tesla. It's like <laughs> Solyndra. You know, it's government providing basically free loans. They don't need to pay back. And Yeah, they have, of, no, they have no business model. They're not actually servicing the, 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 uh, the needs of customers. They're just like getting all their revenue from the government. Yeah, and I almost hate to paint Elon Musk in that brush, but he, he's so revered by people, and they claim he's like this entrepreneur, and he's like visionary and all this stuff, but he's so tied to government that um, I, I just got to paint him with that crony brush, you know? I don't blame you. I mean, he, he seems to be pushing technology, but at at the expense of outright theft. I mean, he's he's creating products, but that people are buying, I'll give him that much, but he's not doing it in any kind of a market way. Yeah, you know, did you realize that, uh, you know, of course he has Tesla, right, and they've got showrooms or whatever. I don't know if, I don't know if they can even call them showrooms because technically the only way to purchase a Tesla is over the Internet. You cannot walk into a Tesla store and buy one because of some ridiculous government regulation about how cars need to be sold. Like it needs to be through yep. some kind of franchise dealership model. It can't go any other way for yep. quote-unquote consumer protection or some other fucking bullshit. More like, so, more like car dealership protection, but yes. Right, yeah, exactly. So uh, they have to kind of go around it. You know, the technology had to be uh, – figured a, a workaround and that seems like you know technology always tries to advance and work around the encroachments of government and government's usually behind the the curve in that and then tries to catch up and we see it with uber we see it with airbnb we see it with any innovation especially in retail environments like with um you know traveling salesmen then you had to get peddlers licenses uh, department stores oh they have five floors of different goods and services so we need to like restrict that because it out-competes, you know, my little general store or catalog uh, dealers. And now, of course, Amazon, you know, there's all these deals about how, well, they don't have to pay tax and that's not fair. So to put everyone on a fair playing field, we're going to start taxing every transaction online. Yeah. How fair is that? Yeah. Uh, well, we're not stealing from everybody. So rather than <laughs> not stealing from anybody, we're just going to make it to cover everybody because that'll make it more fair. <laughs> Fucking bullshit. It's a good rant, Daniel. Good rant. Um, there was one last thing about the movie that you sprang to my mind when you were started talking. Um, so Monarch, like I said, they basically were being fraudulent when they were securing funding for this expedition. They said that they were going to go map the island, but what they were really doing was looking for monsters because they are a company that, for some reason is in the world, in the business of finding monsters. I don't know how they intend to monetize that, but that's what they claim to be. So they lie to the senator to get him on the, on the island and then to get the, um, the soldiers in danger. And everybody that goes on this, this expedition is in danger, right? I mean, you're going into this island with all these giant monsters on it. So Monarch... They're not exactly sure what they're going to find, but they're pretty sure they're going to find monsters there. And there's one scene where Sam Jackson walks up to John Goodman after his whole, his whole expedition has you know, been trashed by Kong, and he sticks a gun in his face. And he's like, you better tell me why all my men are dead, and you better give me a good story or else I'm going to blow your head off. And I forget the speech exactly how Goodman says it, but he basically agrees that, uh, yeah, he, he knew um, that what he did. Uh, so I would say that, that that's completely immoral, right? You're committing fraud on top of theft for getting this, the funding for this expedition. But, yeah, you're, not, you're, you're expecting to find these monsters there, and yet, yeah, you tell everybody that, no, it's going to be fine, safe, even though you're going there with a military escort. I mean, what kind of expectation of threat level do you have when you are voluntarily going on one of these expeditions? I mean, you're kind of expecting that someone's going to be playing it straight with you about the dangers, but at the same time, you get around all this military equipment, and, you know, that can't just be for nothing. 
Yeah, it's one of those things that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and, and I'd argue it's just in the script to make it sort of work for the story. But I, I would think that since the Vietnam War was still ongoing and winding down at the time, and this is what it's facing the South China Sea, right? So they could have made the argument that, well, it's near Vietnam, there's hostility in the area, so we want to make sure that we protect uh, the scientists going there, and that would be the reason for the military escort. But the uh, the other side of what you were saying is that, you know, they're in the business of, like, going out and finding monsters. I can't imagine a scenario where that would play out without government involvement. So to, to be lying to the senators and, and all that stuff seems to be a little bit, of course, it's all fantasy, right? But it seems even more fantastical to me. Like, I would think that the government would be in on it. Like, it would be this partnership uh, with mm. government to, you know, hey, we're fighting these wars, we're fighting communism, we're fighting whatever. We need to find these uh, monsters and use them, use their powers for, for good, right, to spread democracy throughout the world, whatever the same right. line or, is. Right, or to, yeah, unleash one of these monsters in Russia or whatever, you know, whatever war zone or who knows whatever they're trying to do. Right, because what business model would there be otherwise? Yeah, other than like a tourism type of thing or some sort of an archaeological or film thing where well, you going, actually... Going back to like the original Kong, wasn't he captured and then put on exhibit and then he escaped in New York? So it was a exhibition, you know, like come see this monster. It was like a zoo type thing before previous Definitely. movies. That's, that was Jack Black. He was kind of like the villain in that movie and he, he wanted to bring Kong back at all cost to show him in you know, on Broadway and of course, yeah, the, the very first show, it's like a huge hit. But yeah, then Kong escapes and trashes New York, and then they kill Kong. And it's a very tragic story, and you're pissed off at Jack Black for doing that, violating Kong's rights, kidnapping him and taking him to this place, and then basically setting him loose in this alien environment that he is just trying to survive, and he's angry, and he whatever and then he gets murdered and then he's got this famous line that you know it's beauty that killed the beast bullshit jack black you did it that's you absolving yourself of any responsibility for what you did jack black you killed the beast you let him loose in downtown new york you brought this wild animal without proper restraints yeah well the fact that he even brought him back at all I mean, I could be making an anti-zoo argument here, I guess, um, but Kong certainly seems to be the next level up where uh, he is a sentient being. And uh, Well, I could, I could make an anti-zoo argument. I, I, I don't enjoy supporting zoos. Uh, um, I understand that it's, it's serving a market desire. That's why they exist. Um, people like to go and see them, but um, it's essentially a prison. Yeah, are, zoos, or, are there actual private zoos, or are they pretty much all government or something? Uh, there or are not? some private zoos. I know there's one in Hawaii that I went to, um, but I, I would imagine that most are some sort of quasi-public-private organizations, much like, like or universities and that sort of thing. That's just my guess, though. I don't really know. Yeah, that might be something to talk about again in a future episode because it might be worth exploring maybe with a little bit of research on our end, which would totally throw our audience for a loop because we <laughs> we hardly do any research. I'm sorry to say, folks, uh, we're basing this on just years of uh, exposure to you know some literature and a bunch of audio and video uh, you know lectures and whatnot, and just, we have this real loose recall of a lot of these concepts. So perhaps in a future one we can actually do some research ahead of time and have something more legitimate to say. Might be a good idea. What we still say is legitimate, Daniel. It's just not researched at all. So we could speculate on whether or not zoos are public or private, and then someone could be angrily screaming at their phone right now saying that, of course, it's public, you moron. Um, but, you know, that's the way we live. 
Yeah, controversy. Give us give us some comments and some feedback. You know, challenge us on stuff or give us ideas. Uh, you know what? Another good thing that that we might do is start asking people for suggestions for movies that we should talk about. I think that would be pretty cool. Definitely. Yeah. If anybody's interested to have us tear apart a movie, absolutely. That'd be great. Because as it is, it's just like, hey, what did I see? Or here's a cult classic that's interesting. Or we get suggestions from some people. We've done a few movies now that have been suggestions from uh, people in the Tom Woods group. And they've actually come on and been guests for us. And those have been great episodes. Yeah, I agree. I've been real happy with all of our guests so far. I'm sure we'll get a dud in there somewhere, but, uh, you know, I'll still publish it. Whatever. (laughs) See how the sausage is made. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, that's about it. I got... I don't know how long we've been talking, but it uh, feels like an episode worth. Yeah, pretty close. I mean, there's a few other things I, I wanted to discuss, but we probably don't really have time, but maybe we can save it for a future episode as well. Uh, one was the concept of the um, putting a rider on a bill, and that's a way of, like, sneaking something in to get funding uh, because they'll put it on a bill that, of course, will get approved, right? And it'll be, like, way down in the sub-pages, like page 1712, uh, funding for whatever, and you know it's not enough of a thing to make it not pass. So of course it'll pass. Right. It's like a way of handing out free money, right? It's uh, what do they call it? Pork pork barrel? Is that what they say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah, and then uh, I wanted to get more into the Anprims because you're talking about this civilization or this race of people or the society that lives in the island, and, and they eschew having any property, but they actually. You know, they sort of do have some property at the very least. But because of their misconceptions of, you know, common ownership or no ownership or not believing in private property, they're, of course, going to remain primitive, right? There's no way to cobble together any capital to improve their lot, right? Like, they're not going to come up with additional tools or, or come up with mechanization or a factory model, you know, to, to make their standard of living increase. They're going to be stuck at that level, that, that and prim level that is, uh, you know, not really going to support a uh, wide and diverse civilization. Yeah, um, there is one. Let's expand on this just a little bit. There's one scene where right after he explains how they're like beyond personal property. Um, This makes me think that all the property is public property because so there is, like, a property does exist, but it belongs to everybody, right? Because there's this, uh, right after he explains that, he leads the group into this, I don't know, it's like a temple, I guess you could call it, or a shrine, where there are um, these drawings of Kong and the skull crawlers and people, kind of like their history. And John C. Riley goes, well, if you're attached, if you like your hands, don't touch anything. So so then it must be somebody's property or public property if it's so important to people that – or it's, it's a property that you're not allowed to touch or else they will actually remove your hand for touching it. Um, is that really in line with an ANCOM ideology? I don't know. Is it? Well, it's sort of, so you sort of have to deny self-ownership, right? So it's not your hand anymore. It's the – group's hands or one of the group's many hands <laughs> it, it's it's really hard to, to understand because it doesn't follow any logical system right uh, it's it's sort of like just a word salad that they throw together um what's that guy the venus project guy joe joseph uh peter joseph he's yep. really great at spinning all this elucidative elucidatory language that sounds all smart and uh, it's very hypnotic to listen to, but he's really not saying anything. And I feel like that's a lot of the ANCOM argument uh, where they just say a bunch of stuff that sounds interesting and sounds good, sounds pleasing, sounds happy, but it really doesn't work in a uh, practical environment. And, you know, let alone the, the whole, calculation problem and scarcity problem you know he's like railing against nature and hey sorry buddy (laughs) uh it's the condition that you're born into i mean there's there's not a whole lot you can do about it other than setting about to take your limited means and resources and attempting to achieve your ends and it's 
a combination of specialization, division of labor, saving up, and creating a better uh, capital structure to improve the production process that will get you out of this primitive culture, you know, this primitive way of living and improve improve the standard of living. Yeah, talking about, you know, arguments that just sound good and don't actually do good, um, that's, that's, that's the left for you, right? I mean, like the altruism and the caring for the poor, and it's like that's how they get you. That's how that's... It's like, well, you care about the poor, right? So, of course, you're, you're on the left, right? As if nobody on the right cares about the poor. Anarchists don't care about the poor. Libertarians don't care about the poor. Um, but you like, dig into what they actually mean by that, and it means subsidizing poverty, creating more poverty, and creating subsidizing poverty through theft, which is entirely immoral, even if it was a good thing. Right, even if their intentions are good because they lack an understanding in economics, they advocate for policies that are actually self-destructive and, and harm the people they're intending to help. And it reminds me of a Rothbard quote where he says, you know, if economics is a diverse and difficult subject to understand, um, and remaining in a state of ignorance with that is, is perfectly okay in your day-to-day life. But if you're going to have a, a strong and vociferous opinion about policy, then you better learn some fucking economics first. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but that's pretty much the point. Like, you can't go out there and, and advocate for something that is actually going to be destructive thinking it's going to be good because you, you lack an understanding in, in how things actually work, how they function. And I think that this is that dichotomy of the emotional thinking versus the logical and rational thinking or moral thinking because I think that would be the side that we're on, like we – attempt to understand things from a practical point of view, but also from a moral point of view and uh, an economic law point of view. So, you know, and it's not to say that you can be a social engineer at that point. We're saying that attempting to be a social engineer and attempting to outsmart what millions of people are going to do on a voluntary basis uh, in a latticework of, of a market structure is folly. It's, it's the fatal conceit that Hayek would talk about. And uh, so it's, it's best left that, that people employ their own individual means to achieve their own individual ends. And the best, you know, they're, they're all going to try to do the best thing for themselves. But in that process, the best thing ends up generally being providing something of value to someone else in a voluntary exchange. So everyone is better off. Yes, leaving people alone makes you better off. Even when, even if it seems like you just want to control other people and you don't like these bad things that other people are doing that you think are bad, uh, would you want to kill that person to stop them from doing that? Um, it's, I, I don't know how exactly how to put it, but um, it definitely seems like there are people in the world that think that it's okay to control other people. Um, it's probably part of the indoctrination of government like we have this government and that's what it does and that's what it's there for and that's how you get things done so let's use it well government actually makes everything worse and it's horrific and immoral so should you really use that tool it's like if the only tool you had was like a machine gun would you would you really want to use that tool to build your house i you know it's bad bad daniel yeah, it's funny how uh, <laughs> the the anarcho-communists and the anarcho-primitivists can only employ their prescriptions for people through the use of a machine gun, which they could never produce outside of a free market. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. They could never do it themselves, but they they're they're happy to take the fruits of other people and employ them to destroy the process by which those fruits are made. Yep, and, and of course it's the, the very process that has provided those things to them that allows them the luxury to have the time to have all of their other needs satisfied so they can bitch about, you know, the, the manner in which it's provided. <laughs> right. Even though it's a totally immoral system uh, to, you know, voluntary exchange is totally fine, I don't, you know. So... Anyway, let's let's wind this one down. Uh, my wife's already been uh, suggesting that I come in, come into the house, and I feel like we've probably reached a point where we're no longer talking about the movie anymore. 
So let's let's uh, wrap this up real quick. Do you just want to give a final like thought on this movie and then uh, say whatever else you want, and then we'll shut this one out? Yeah, go see it uh, if you want. You want to see a fun kind of action movie, kind of big monster movie, Rock'em Sock'em Robots. If you like Pacific Rim, if you liked uh, the last Godzilla movie, um, this isn't tonally quite the same, but it's more of a popcorn-y flick. Uh, don't get... You're not going to get too attached to the characters, <laughs> uh, but you will see some fun uh, battle scenes, some some good action. Um, the the character design on the monsters that that uh, Kong fought, and this is true for the past couple movies, uh, didn't really do anything for me. The the Godzilla guys that the Godzilla fought were not super great. They just looked like big bat creatures or something. Um, well, these monsters just look like like lizards with arms, uh, they're okay, but nothing like spectacular. Um, I don't know why. Maybe they're saving the good designs for the next movies, where they don't want to like overshadow the designs for Kong and like the heroes and whatnot. I guess. Um, I think you got to have like cool looking villains. I think it just makes the hero better. Um, Luke Skywalker was awesome because Darth Vader was a badass, not not because Darth Vader was a pushover, but. Um, yeah, the movie's good, solid. It's a solid movie. It's not going to blow your doors off, but it's a fun, it's a fun couple hours in a theater. Um, but uh, you know, see it for somewhere there's good sound, decent picture, or you could wait till it's on Blu-ray. Who cares? Uh, that said, uh, thanks for listening. Um, like us on Facebook. Check us out at actualanarchy.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Actual Anarchy and Trubster. Um, and uh, just be free and live free and uh, love yourselves, love each other, and take care of yourself. Yeah, well said, Robert. And, uh, yeah, I'll just reiterate, we are actualenergy.com and readrothbar.com. Click on any of the Amazon links, the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom link. We host actually three podcasts. This one about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. We also host... Uh, or Host is, is sort of a weird word, but um, we host it as in a server host something. Uh, the Any of the State, which is Murray Rothbard Lectures, and then the Reed Rothbard Podcast, which is now audiobooks by Murray Rothbard. Though neither of those have us um, introducing anything. It's just you're straight into the book or you're straight into a lecture. But do check those out. All, all three are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, uh, Overcast, or wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, do give us a like, a share, a subscribe, a comment, a rating, a review. All of that helps push the message of liberty from a uh, voluntarist perspective, which is what we ascribe to, and we think it's the only moral and ethical uh, modus operandi to move forward with. And with that, I uh, bid you all adieu. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode about the movie Kong Skull Island. Peace out, homies. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 And give somebody a hug. God, what's wrong with you? Go out, find somebody, squeeze them. But not like a bear hug, right? No, no, no. King Kong hug. You can do a King Kong hug. Whatever. Whatever you think that the person you're gonna hug and wants to be hugged would appreciate. I don't don't go up and like crack their back for them. Just you know, a nice solid embrace. I think people would appreciate that. And with that, we say good night. Hugs, hugs to everyone. <laughs>